Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Thank you for joining us for the seventh episode of Monroe College's School of Criminal and Social Justice, Blind Justice Podcast. I am Jody McCalla, the director of the School of Criminal and Social Justice on the New Rochelle, New York campus. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss the undeniable nexus between mental health, substance abuse, and crime. Mental health, substance abuse, and crime are three interconnected aspects of our society that cannot be ignored. They form an intricate web, each influencing and impacting the others in profound ways. Understanding the nexus is essential if we are to address the underlying issues and work towards creating a healthier and safer society for all. Today, we have two dynamic Monroe College professors as guests. Dr. Michelle Razor is a director of the KSAC program at Monroe College. She received a Doctor of Education degree at the University of Phoenix and holds a Master of Science in Education from Hofstra University and a Bachelor of Science degree from SUNY Empire College. She is a New York State licensed mental health counselor with a private practice. Dr. Razor is also a New York State Master's Level Certified Rehabilitation Counselor She's worked as a clinical director in several community-based substance abuse agencies, providing supervision and oversight to clinical staff. Additionally, Dr. Razor has worked with the Department of Corrections in Suffolk County, New York, teaching curriculums covering challenges unique to men and women with mental health, substance abuse, and other co-occurring disorders. Her work with currently and formerly incarcerated individuals extends well over 30 years. Professor Dejanay Martin has served as an adjunct professor at Monroe College for over 12 years. Professor Martin has always maintained her passion for protecting the underprivileged and educating the young minds of our next legal public service professional generations. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice from John Jay College and a Master's Degree in Education with a Specialization in Counseling from Hunter College. Professor Martin earned her Juris Doctorate in Law from City University of New York. She began her career working for top Fortune 500 law firms in various legal positions. This is inclusive of studying criminal law abroad in London, England, working for both solicitors and barristers. Professor Martin has experience in the areas of marketing and research, senatorial policy teams, district attorney's office, in both Supreme and Criminal Court. She also has extensive experience and knowledge in mental health services and treatment fields. Thank you, Professor Martin and Dr. Razor, for joining us for this important podcast. According to a study done by Frank and McGuire, on any given day, more than one million people with mental illnesses are incarcerated or on probation or on parole in the United States. Dr. Razor, can you explain the concept of co-occurring disorders? Thank you for having me for this podcast today. And it's an honor and a privilege. Co-occurring disorders speaks to two different disorders or maybe more than two occurring at the same time. And so it could be 
substance abuse uh, disorders that a person is struggling with or mental health disorders. And what's so interesting about it is that a person using substances, it could actually induce or mimic mental health symptoms so that even if they weren't diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis, because they're taking the substances, they might experience um, substance-induced psychosis or some other type of mental health symptom. And so both of those disorders definitely need to be treated at the same time. A lot of times individuals would go into maybe a substance abuse agency and they would be screened. And if it was determined that they had a mental health diagnosis as well, sometimes they were turned away. But a couple of years ago, Oasis and Mental Health came together to help the community of professionals understand that those disorders exist together and they have to be treated together. So there are two separate substances that might activate the other. Thank you for that. And it is interesting that substance use can mimic mental health disorders. Professor Martin, can you explain how substance abuse can exacerbate a pre-existing mental health condition, leading to a higher risk of criminal involvement? Well, like we were saying before, a lot of times when we have dual diagnosis, aka co-occurring um, individuals, a lot of people don't go undiagnosed, right? They could have depression, post-traumatic stress, socialization issues, and they self-medicate themselves. And when self-medicating themselves, sometimes it makes the symptoms worse because of the fact that both diagnoses are not being treated. Dr. Razor, can you discuss the challenges that the criminal justice system faces in addressing mental health and substance abuse issues? Well, some of the challenges that have historically been recognized is, first of all, Some of the studies, like even from the Mental Health America, they have a website with statistics. They say that in 2019 to 2020, 20.78% of the adults experienced mental illness. So that was about 50 million Americans. And most of those individuals had a substance use disorder and they had mental health disorders. But the problem was that they weren't treated. And some of the challenges are that individuals don't have access. They might. It might also be based on um, not having health insurances. So when you have a lot of times they're saying, well, they're not on their medications. There's so many reasons why they're not on their medications. And I look at it as a responsibility of a individual, but it's also a systemic problem, right? So that those services are in place. And I know we're going to talk a little further about that, but services need to be in place. So the challenge is persons going into the criminal justice system, there has to be a system in place. And one model that I really um, like is one called the sequential intercept model. And I'll talk a little bit about that later because it's designed for persons in the criminal justice system or before they get there. So services in place. Thank you. Professor Martin, I'll ask you the same question about challenges faced by the criminal justice system addressing mental health and substance abuse issues. I mean, definitely the criminal justice system is just not designed or equipped to provide mental health services. And there's a strong need to develop more because of the high prevalence of people with mental illness. 
the fact that, you know, there's every time we talk about uh, mental illness within the criminal justice system, you always talk about budgetary issues, staffing ramifications. You know, research shows that there is a high number of people of mental illness that need services within the prison walls, right? Within the staffing and stuff in terms of providing services to those inmates because some of them come in, yes, on a criminal charge, but the fact that they are also suffering from mental illnesses because sometimes it goes hand in hand, right? Generally, mental illness or and concurring substance abuse disorders go hand in hand, which sometimes leads someone into the criminal justice system. And it also goes hand in hand with the fact that many people with substance abuse and mental health go hand in hand with mass incarcerations, right? And the fact that because of that, there's a structural inequality, right, in place that affects race, class, crime as well, in terms of the number of different types of races and socioeconomic people that are, are more incarcerated. And then like Dr. Reza said, lack of health care and social services, right? All of these areas intersect with one another and have a huge impact on placing more challenges on the criminal justice system with regard to serving um, individuals in their system that have these disorders, right? And we don't think about it, but there, there's always a bias, right, in the criminal justice system too as well, right? Because people that have mental health and they come in because of the substance abuse are just strictly treated as criminals, right? They're arrested, they're charged, and they're jailed, and that's it, right? But they don't think about the person as a whole, a more holistic uh, approach in dealing with the inmate, right? Because people come in with variations of issues and the system is just not designed to deal with each, right? It's just not designed to deal with the criminal aspect. And let's face it, the criminal justice system is definitely overrepresentative with people with mental illness and substance abuse issues. Why are we seeing so many people with mental health conditions and substance use disorders in the criminal justice system? Can you opine on that? You know, I read an article that talked about this woman who had mental health issues, right? But she didn't have health insurance. She had children at home. Her diagnoses were schizoaffective. She said PTSD. She also had mood disorders, different types of autism, which was nonverbal learning. And so because she had no health insurance and she didn't have any transportation, she didn't even have ID and she let her children stay with her family. The place that she could get mental health services and her medication was actually in the criminal justice system. So she went into the criminal justice system. And one of the things that she says is that she said, I'd rather be a jailbird than a street rat because she realized that because there wasn't access in the community. And this is just one of the reasons, but because the access isn't there, a lot of people they kind of refer to them as frequent flyers, like they're, they're coming back and forth into the prison system. And sometimes people are coming in because they don't they can't get services and they'll offend just to get arrested, just to go in to get maybe uh, services, mental health services. And then it also speaks to mental health in the community. As much as we see whenever something happens, it's televised and they're talking about mental health services, mental health. It needs to trickle down 
to the services in the community because when individuals are in crises and they're symptomatic and they go to a psych emergency, the services in the community after that are very scarce and limited. So many times people go through psych emergency just to get an appointment in a mental health facility because they can't get in. Thank you, Dr. Razor. Professor Martin, any thoughts on why we see such a prevalence of people with substance use disorders and mental health conditions in the criminal justice system? A lot of times when they're treating themselves for post-traumatic stress and they're self-medicating, they tend to lead to violent behaviors, right? Oftentimes they go out and they commit crimes or domestic violence um, with their partners in the home because of not being able to deal with the pain and the anguish of what they're experiencing that could either be from the mental health or the substance abuse, right? Because you can't really tell which one is outpowering the other, right? That's like saying which one came first, the chicken or the egg. You can't. And that's like Dr. Reza said, you have to treat both. So when individuals go out there, whether to commit crime, to continue to support their habit or engage in a violent act, that's how they tend to end up in a criminal justice system. But just to note, yes, maybe in some prisons, some some patients do receive services, but not all, because a lot of times the system isn't designed when an inmate goes in to say, okay, well, you know, this person commit the crime because mental health, right? They just look at the criminal act itself, right? And then there's no follow-up, right? So once the person is released, like Dr. Reza said, you know, the person is then back on the street, diagnosis and treatment, it doesn't follow them, right? So then they go back out and they, they re-engage in the community in the same behaviors, right? Because they're not getting follow-up treatment and then they re-offend, you know, studies show that a lot of high recidivism rates often are the results of individuals that are untreated or don't have the services that they need in order to sustain themselves within the community. So that is why you see a high prevalence of them in the system. Mm-hmm. So you both spoke about the need for, you know, more mental health services for those that are involved in the criminal justice system. Can you discuss the trend of deinstitutionalization for those who suffer from mental illness, Dr. Razor? Well, deinstitutionalization was brought about as a result of understanding that individuals needed to have daily life skills that they were experiencing and that they were able to do what we were teaching them or that they were being treated for in institutions. So they came up with a model of community houses or you see different agencies out here. They have one called Concern for Community Living and it's designed for persons with mental health and even maybe developmental disabilities so that they can have that experience in the community. And so it's a good model. It definitely speaks to the fact that It needs to be, and it is, uh, supervised 24 hours a day with staff that are trained and that individuals get to experience because in the institutions, they were just there. And, you know, you see different movies, you know, one flew over the cuckoo nest and whichever type of way that persons with mental illness are portrayed. 
But the bottom line is that these are individuals. I was talking to someone the other day. She actually works in the jail here. So, And I was very pleased just to hear the services that they were offering because the services, first of all, there has to be really good screening. But this, the screening that takes place in, in the jail has to go and be able to be followed through in the community to ensure that the individuals have proper housing and proper case management. So deinstitutionalization set that up. These individuals get to experience going out for recreation, going shopping in the community, going to, you know, religious organizations. And so like with anything, challenges in the beginning, I believe it's a good model. There are other systems that have to be implemented and there are other models, but sometimes they're not used to the extent or to the fidelity of it, but it can work. So that's my take on deinstitutionalization. Can deinstitutionalization be harmful to the individual, Dr. Razor? Can it be harmful? Depending, because one type of services or there's something called assistant outpatient treatment. It's called AOT, and it's a community-based civil commitment. So what it does is that those individuals that have mental health challenges that are not compliant with their medication, they're brought before a court. They're looked at, you know, in terms of those individuals with severe psychiatric disorders. And so what happens is the court orders them to take their medication. And it's a whole case management team. So they have case management teams that are in the community that go out to help these individuals to ensure. So if they don't take their medication, then what happens is they'll incarcerate them or mandate that individual to a treatment agency or inpatient. The problem is, is that out of all of these systems or this this uh, assisted outpatient treatment model, the studies show that it's authorized in 47 states, but they're not really practicing it. They're not taking advantage of it. So individuals are left to their own devices. I mean, there's there's mobile crisis teams that go out, actually out here in the woods, they look for people who they know are on the list. They used to call them SPEMIs, severe and uh, persistent mental illness. They changed it a little bit to monitor them because there can be, um, you know, because of the psychosis and not taking their medication, it could be dangerous, but it doesn't mean that they are just these dangerous people, if that makes sense. It does. I want to shift a little bit, Professor Martin. Can you discuss the impact of deinstitutionalization on the community? Because there's been a lot of rhetoric, good and bad, and for and against the institutionalization. How does it affect the community at large? Well, the community at large is the reason of the institutionalization is to take the individual out of the lockdown facility and give them some sense of normalcy by transitioning them with services within the community. And how does that work? It's very political. It's dealing with budgetary issues. And let's face it, a lot of communities don't want facilities within their neighborhoods. So that puts a lot of pressure on politicians, right, in their districts, Right. To to say where they can put these facilities. But that often leads the person with the mental illness out in the cold. Right. So 
because of the fact they need the supportive networks in the community, right, to make themselves feel like they're normal, they're whole, right? Um, And they can function on their daily living activities like everyone else. But let's face it, it depends on the community, right? If you have some communities that support the individuals with, with mental illness. But there are some, as soon as they find out that one is going to be put in their area, they get out there, they protest. They say, no, we don't want this in our neighborhood because we have children and our children could be at danger or at risk, which is not always true, right? But I feel like there needs to be more research in the type of areas they can go to. And I think um, that comes with education, right? Education through educating people in the community, right? Because I would believe in every household, some of us do have a relative, a friend, or a coworker that we know that has suffered from mental illness, right? It doesn't always make them a danger with the proper supportive um, services within the community. NIMBYism, right? The not in my backyard, you know, that mm-hmm. that's that's for mental health and substance abuse, like the sober mm-hmm. houses or the sober homes and communities. And I mean, they could be really compliant and doing what they need to do, but they're just individuals that just frown on it. And the same mm-hmm. thing with persons with mental health challenges. And so they, mm-hmm. you know, it's referred to as NIMBYism. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's strong advocacy, though. There's strong advocates mm-hmm. But they're like uh, Professor Martin said, there has to be trained individuals and not just trained in the community, which I love that the sequential intercept model talks about. But all the way through, even in from prevention to the courts, into the prison so that the housing and everything is in place for these individuals and that it is looked into and that they do have the supports. And education, right? People need to be educated about patients' rights. I mean, we all have rights that need to be protected. And just because someone has a mental disability does not make them less human than someone that doesn't have it. And I feel that most people do not truly understand it until they have someone in their family that's affected by it. Then advocacy kicks in, right? (laughs) Supportiveness kicks in. But then, you know, um, when it comes to substance abuse, I feel like, I'm not saying it's more tolerable, but but I think mental health is less tolerant than substance abuse, right? And a lot of times individuals who are using the substance abuse is because they are self-medicating the underlying issue, which could be the mental health issue. But sometimes people don't see that. But when it's purely mental health, people, I think, react differently than when it's purely substance abuse. I think that's a great point because we certainly have seen a shift in an attitude toward substance use disorders in the 80s and 90s, how these were treated as very differently than it is today. I think there seems to be more awareness. But one of the questions that I have is how do we remove those stigmas that are associated with getting assistance for addictions and mental health issues? As well as lowering cultural barriers, because we know there are certain communities where mental health issues are not addressed or may not be on the forefront and along with substance use disorders. So I'll have you address that, Dr. Razor, first. Well, I think strong advocacy 
lots of advocates. There's so many organizations that people can become a part of the mental health associations, you know, the mental health of America website. There's just so much. NAMI is a national mental health organization, but through advocacy, through training, all the players, all the stakeholders need to be involved from the collegiate level down to the community level for vocation, even down to what we have now are individuals that are training to become certified. They're called surfers. They're uh, like coaches or certified persons that the way that they can be certified is the fact that, and they have this for mental health too, and it's a free website that allows individuals to take all of the courses to become a mental health specialist so that people are are trained and all of the stakeholders understand the importance of including access to these trainings to prepare individuals to address the uh, mental health issues. But it definitely has to come from top to bottom. It can't be just community persons, you know, because something happened. Now there's a press conference and we're speaking to it because we're all appalled and upset because a person with mental health acted out, you know, in a way that, you know, is abnormal, but with the same token, there has to be everybody on the same page in terms of the services so that there's a seamless service delivery system that a person can go through. But, and last but not least, take into consideration that sometimes persons with mental illness say no, so they Mm -hmm. won't do it. And if they get taken into like for a psych emergency, and they ask questions, are you a harm to yourself or you're harm to other? If they don't really verbalize that they're a danger to themselves or the community and they don't have the right information to hold them, they let them go. So it's a whole system of change. And what are your thoughts, um, Professor Martin, on how we remove the stigmas and lower cultural barriers with getting assistance for addictions and mental health issues? I think through education, people need to know the facts about mental health and how it can affect the individual and how it can affect the family as a whole, as the the union, um, including how substance abuse disorders interact with mental illness and vice versa. Also, we need to be aware of our attitudes and behaviors about mental health. Many of us, you know, we we say things out loud and we we do things within our family. You were speaking about culturally, right? Some cultures, they don't like to know that someone in their family is not adjusted. I want to say maladjusted, right? (laughs) To everyday living, right? They don't even recognize in some cultures uh, mental illness because it's a stigma for the family, right? And also, you know, we need to choose our words carefully, right? When we are describing mental health, right? Even when we're servicing individuals with mental health and their families, right? We need to choose our words carefully and educate them to choose their words carefully. And I can't stress educate, 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 right? And when you're educating, focus on the positive, right? Never on the negative, right? Everyone always looks at mental health as woo, you know, but it's it's something that can be adjusted to where you are functioning every day like everyone else and give them support and love, right? If you're in your family, support and love, right? Um, And you need to include all the family members, right? The collaterals, the outside family members, the friends, the community, Um, everyone needs to be involved, right? Because everyone needs to be able to talk about mental health openly. And it would give people the courage 
to talk about mental health openly in an open forum, right? Also be compassionate, right? Um, compassionate for those who have it and for those who are family members dealing with someone in their family that has it, right? Because it's, it's a stressful thing just to say uh, individuals that have uh, chronic diseases that often depression becomes a part of their daily lives, anxiety, and they're aggressive as a result, right? People need to go to, to, to groups in order to learn how to deal with individuals um, that are expressing their pain, maybe in a maladaptive way and empower the family, right? To choose empowerment over shame, right? It's okay to have mental health, right? I mean, it's, it's not something that you can't work through, right? You need to be empowered that you, if you have the right tools, that yes, you too can get through this, right? And to be honest, what it's going to take to be treated for it, right? What it's going to take to stick to the therapy, to stick to the medication regimen, you know, to be able to express themselves when they're feeling uncomfortable or maybe not like themselves. So I think those are the type of things that are that are key in order to break down. And it's a lot, right? And it's something that our society has been working over for years, but you know, a lot of times we have been trying to sweep it under the rug and putting a band-aid on it when we need to just face it head on. So Dr. Razor, you've mentioned a few times the sequential intercept model. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, I will. I like uh, what Professor Martin said also in terms of the, the cultural competence and the cultural aspect of what you asked in terms of that question, because a lot of times people take a cultural competence course and they think that that is the, the essence of it, but it's an ongoing learning process to learn about the different cultures and how they view mental health challenges. So I think that's so important. But um, the sequential intercept model is basically is designed to advance community-based solutions for justice-involved people. And so what it does is it starts with it's intercept zero, intercept one, two, three, four, and five. And at intercept zero, it's saying that those that provide mobile crisis services and those um, first responders and those emergency department persons and police officers that have um, services that, because they're going to come into contact with these individuals, that systems need to be put in place so that at those points of access or engagement or encounter that those professionals are trained to deal with the population because sometimes things escalate and it turns sour when we don't have properly trained individuals. And so Intercept One goes into training and understanding how dispatchers need to be trained, how there should be specialized units. With, and this is a lot, right? And this is why a lot of times communities are like, oh my God, we have so much to do. How are we going to really, you know, prepare ourselves this way? But specialized police officers that respond, specialized teams to learn how to interact with individuals with behavioral problems and behavior crisis that they might be in to be able to know how to, to engage them and then to have follow-up services. And then the, the intercept two is, goes into screening. So important for persons with mental health challenges to screen, you know, so that you, you understand that both disorders have to be treated and maybe 
they don't have a mental health problem, but most of the time, individuals with substance abuse problems, you're, you're going to be treating co-occurring disorders because it's always there. High incidence of anxiety, depression, and bipolar disorder, and even some schizophrenia. And so understanding that. So the courts are set up with pretrial diversion programs. They have mental health courts. And so just understanding that all of the services in place. So this model is designed to intercept at any point because even if they got to a point of encountering, you know, someone uh, in the community with the person who dispatched the police officers that arrived at the scene, they don't have to end up in the criminal justice system because they're trained to know that there's services, there are respites, there's hospitals, there's emergency places. And then on with the other places of intercept so that the courts have highly trained individuals that even in the jails that I was talking a little bit earlier about the person that I had talked to, that she's in, she works for a program and they do the screening, the assessment, the identifying what the needs are. And what, what I like is that, you know, because the government has services, they have iPads, telephones, they try to set them up with all of the things that they need. And then they're going to actually maybe need someone for reentry to pick them up to help them get to that place of transition that they are going to have to go to, but everything in place. So understanding that even upon release from the jail, there should be a treatment plan. There should be a whole plan in place. They can't just be given, you know, however much money they used to give inmates and tell them to catch the bus. No, because guess what? You have persons, it's a whole dynamic is a whole uh, cultural shift because they were just in a whole different culture. And now they're out to fend for themselves to try to pull things together and anything can happen from point A to point B. And just the specialized community supervision teams. But then it signals jobs and training for so many individuals and just to be able to implement and execute this type of and it's not. This is not the only uh, model that they have. They they have other models for forensic assertive community treatment. So it's designed for persons that are incarcerated, and then they have to want it because I was talking. And I'm going to read that, but I was talking to her, and she's one of the workers. She's case manager in the jail, and she said she got everything together, but the person just wanted you know to get the information how to get social services, get the telephone, but they didn't want the other services. So it's, you know, just kind of knowing and be trained to be able to know how to help individuals when they want to be helped. Thank you for that. So, so Mm -hmm. those points, Professor Martin, what can families do to support family members with substance abuse disorders and or mental health disorders? You know, support within the family unit. And like I said, that's through education. Families need to be educated on how to help individuals within their family to work through their mental health crises, right? And go through family counseling, which is really hard, right? To get families to come in and participate in services. Many of them don't want to identify, you know, with the fact that the family member has mental health. Needless to say, be in sitting in a counseling session with them. And many people don't have access to funds, right? Lately, since the pandemic, you try to get services 
for counseling and mental health, it's going to cost you a pretty penny, right? And 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 maybe the insurance doesn't cover it, right? So there's a lot of issues, economic issues, inequality issues that prevents families. But you know, I I always feel like within the home, simple education putting more centers in the community where families can go to that don't cost them that much nonprofit organization. I often tell um, some clients that came into the past, you're lucky to be in the age of the internet, right? You can't believe everything, but you give them reparable sites that they can go on to educate themselves and read, right? About certain issues and not just read the clinical stuff because you want to put it in layman's terms, but read individuals that have stories that are similar to your own, right? So that you can have a mutual understanding of what other families are experienced and they're not alone, right? They're not alone, that there are other people out there that are going through the same thing. And it's a work in progress, right? It's a work in progress. I think just pivoting back to the criminal justice system, I think one of the key things is to decrease the criminalization of mental health as a whole, right? Um, Dr. Reza and and her uh, five points. I think those are the areas we need to be strengthened and have these these crisis mobile teams to be able not to just deal with them when they come into the criminal justice system, but be able to go into the household, right? That they can pick up a phone and say, have a moment crisis unit come into the home, educate them and, and help them and give them ways of, of dealing with that member in a family and where they can go to in, when it's a crisis situation. Dr. Razor, any thoughts about family support? Well, you know what? The model that is in place now for certified peer advocates, I think is excellent in terms of, you know, I think they need to give them a, a higher salary, but they have certified uh, peer advocates for substance abuse. They can be certified as a peer advocate for uh, mental health. And so the good thing about that is you're dealing with a peer. So those type of peer advocates have to have lived experience. They have to have had a mental health or have the diagnosis and gone through the system and, and have taken the training and also with the substance abuse so that they have that support because support is, I always tell this um, clients and students, support is like a wheel. The client is, or the person is that hub in the middle and all of the spokes on the wheel are the supports that a person needs. And so everything that a person can be connected to is what they're going to need. They're going to definitely need a peer advocate. They're going to need therapy. They're going to need substance abuse treatment. They're going to need support groups in the community. And the other interesting thing is, is that mental health or mental illness they're high-functioning people. They're, even though we see a lot of individuals that it's obvious, oh my God, they have a mental illness. There are individuals that are on their medication. They're in high-profile position. They are doing work. They are professors. They are trainers. They own their businesses. And, and it's there, but people can function. And so having those conversations and... um. You know, one other subject is one uh, one year we talked about how 
one gender, it's very difficult to talk about mental illness. I don't know if you, you know, what well, well, male sometimes, though, men, it's like inaudible, you know, sometimes men just don't want to talk about it and they just suffer silently. So just to have those conversations and to make things more available and to have, you know, more forums so that there can be panel discussions and forums that help individuals bring some normalcy to their lives so that they don't have to keep hiding and feeling like they're, you know, they're not a part of in the process of trying to recover. It's a terrible place to be. So we are coming to the end of our podcast. So I want to turn it over to Professor Martin for any last thoughts on our topic. Last thoughts is educate yourself. Get out there, read about mental health and substance abuse, dual diagnose, and don't be afraid to go and seek help because you're not alone, right? Everyone is suffering from something and even more now than before, right? The pandemic has put three times as much pressure and focus on the area of co-occurring diagnosis because a lot of people had the extra weight of COVID and the pandemic on top of that, and they were home suffering alone. So now I want people to come out from the shadows and be willing to put themselves out there. And there's always going to be someone that's going to listen, right? Someone that's going to be responsive to what the mental health problems they're going through, be it your friend, your coworker, um, someone on a on a uh, anonymous call. I mean, now they have services you could pick up the phone and call someone. I mean, yes, there's an inequality in terms of services, but yes, if you look on the internet or you go to your local center, um, you can always find help. Don't suffer alone, right? Because you're not alone. Thank you, Dr. Razor. Any last thoughts? This has been a wonderful discussion and, you know, just in creating these opportunities for individuals to have access and to be able to, you know, come together and understand that mental illness can be treated. It definitely can be treated, but there's a compliance component connected to it and you have to follow the instructions, you know, your medication. Some people end up on psychotropic meds and some are taken off. They, they're weaned off and they live normal lives. So it's not a death sentence. So just helping individuals understand that. But one thing I have to give to the criminal justice system is that they have made some great progress in ensuring that mental health services and substance abuse services are in the jail. And of course, it has to be improved upon, but the access is there and individuals um, have to be screened and they can they can have the services. It's it's there, even out. And I talk about uh, Suffolk County, but, you know, the Sheriff's Addiction Treatment Program, they have two separate programs in the jail, the Sheriff's uh, Addiction Treatment Program, and then they have the mental health program. And they come together, but just to make sure that individuals have access to those services and that they are um, transitioned into the community because the housing situation is a whole nother podcast because that, um, that is so challenging. Absolutely. So thank you for having me again. And um, Excellent podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Razor and Professor Martin for this enlightening discussion. 
you help to foster a greater understanding of the undeniable nexus between mental health, substance abuse, and crime, break down stigmas associated with mental health and substance abuse, and explore potential solutions and interventions that can make a positive impact. Together, we can work towards a society that prioritizes mental health, supports those struggling with substance abuse, and provides meaningful alternatives to crime. Thank you for listening. Join us for Episode 8, Law Enforcement, Leadership, and Use of Force, The Reality versus the Myth. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.